This is a Federal News Network podcast. Last Monday, VA Secretary Dennis McDonough made public a plan for revamping the vast collection of health care facilities throughout the nation. VA proposes closing and tearing down many medical centers, building some new ones, and establishing outpatient centers, and moving more care to the private sector. The American Federation of Government Employees, which represents a couple of hundred thousand VA employees, doesn't like the plan, not one bit. Here with why, the director of AFGE's public policy department, Jacqueline Simon. Ms. Simon, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Now, the AFGE was sort of dumping on the plan before it even came out. Did you guys see it ahead of time, or did you just presume it was going to be terrible? Well, (laughs) both is the answer. It was placed in the Mission Act of 2018 by the Koch brothers, very, very right-wing privatizing organization. They call themselves the Concerned Veterans of America, and they exist solely to try to advocate for dismantling the VA system and privatizing the whole thing. And they got a lot of what they wanted in that bill, in the Mission Act of 2018. We knew this commission was going to be a template for mass privatization, and that's what it is. Different groups of AFGE members geographically had some briefings prior to last Monday, and we had a couple of national briefings, uh, partial briefings, I should say. We certainly never saw the whole thing. Of course, we asked Secretary McDonough to change what was in the plan, and he refused to do that. He's kind of said different things to different audiences. He says he doesn't like the law and and wished he didn't have to be doing it, but he's carrying out the law. But boy, is he carrying out the law in the worst possible way. (laughs) Well, a lot of the plan, yes, it does tear down some medical centers like in Manhattan, where there aren't that many veterans around relative to what there were when that place was built. I've seen it. It's a big building and a tall one. So is there no room to reorganize VA facilities or what's the main objection that you have? Well, the first objection... This thing was put together by a group inside the VA hired by Secretary Wilkie with instructions to you know, take a wrecking ball to the system. It's this same group of employees hired during the Trump administration who put this thing together. The first thing you have to know is that all the data they use to justify their recommendations, all, 100%, is pre-pandemic data, mostly from 2016 to 2018. I think that alone makes the recommendations faulty insofar as they're on a foundation of data that is not just old, but turned out not to be very valid. One of the problems with using data from pre-pandemic times is that the market assessments that they did, they were measuring excess capacity in the private sector, and then they were evaluating and measuring in-house capacity. I want to take that apart on two different sides. So when you're looking at the private sector and what they called excess capacity in the private sector, I think all of us remember in New York City, among other places, hospitals overrun during the pandemic, patients on gurneys in hallways, auxiliary tents being put together at the last minute to try to house patients. VA has its fourth mission of public health and being available to the general public in times of emergency. Pandemic was certainly a time of emergency. The VA absolutely rose to the occasion and not only took care of the entire veteran population that needed it, but also took care of others as well. So I think that we found out that the so-called excess capacity in the private sector was uh, more myth than fact. Okay, that's one side of it. And then there's measuring the in-house capacity of the VA. 
Now, one of the most important criteria they used to justify closures was staffing levels. And you might recall that during the Trump administration, they deliberately kept more than 50,000 authorized positions unfilled as part of this privatization agenda. It was, you know, starve the beast, starve the VA of resources, use all the resources that Congress appropriated for VA healthcare to give an open check to private sector providers. In the meantime, they didn't hire in the VA and left the VA understaffed. And that's when they measured it, when it was deliberately understaffed. And now they'll turn around and say, well, we have to privatize because we can't hire. We didn't hire its understaffed. So that data that really, really is the foundation for the justification for all the proposals is is worthless. It should be thrown in the trash can. And let me ask you this. A lot of the plan relies on establishing a new type of facility, the MBOC, I think it's called. It's an outpatient type of facility that gives the main services, surgery and psychoanalytic services and so on. That seems to be the way medicine is going generally. What's the objection to that idea so that if you have a same type of surgery someone in the private sector or non-veteran would have, pretty much they, I think the example that came up was hip surgery. It used to be four days in the hospital for that. Now you're four hours in a place and they practically send you home on a bicycle. Shouldn't VA move to those contemporary ways? Well, it's funny that you raised the uh, hip surgery example. During the George W. Bush era, when they wanted to privatize half of all federal jobs, including hundreds of thousands that were inherently governmental. The favorite example was lawn mowing. They'd say, why should a federal employee burden with all that, you know, unnecessary things for a low life human being who does things like landscaping work and mowing the lawn? Why should that person have health insurance and a retirement plan and a federal job? That's the kind of thing we need to outsource. And lawn mowing was their favorite example of what needed to be outsourced when what they were really outsourcing to all of our detriment was vast amounts of the government's IT infrastructure and everything else anywhere near it. This gang is using hip surgery as their example. And in your description of what's in this plan, they are not only closing many medical centers, they're gutting many medical centers. And the ones that aren't on the hit list for outright closure this time, there'll be another round if this thing goes through will be the remaining centers that they destroyed by taking away their emergency rooms, their ICUs, their surgery departments. You know, veterans do have more complex problems than needing hip replacement. Hip replacement is a real easy one for them to use because it seems, oh, sure, and it's widely available in the private sector. Why should anyone care where they get their hip replaced? But that's not all that goes on in a VA hospital. And one of the things that anybody who knows anything about the veteran patient population knows that they present with uh, uniquely complex issues. Some, the result of their service, illnesses and conditions that they acquired during their military service, and, you know, other things that have presented as they've aged, their conditions exacerbated, whatever. And there are very complex interconnected problems that this patient population presents with. They are unique in many, many ways. The private sector isn't necessarily capable at this moment of treating veterans and definitely not capable of treating veterans in the way that they currently are treated in a VA hospital where it's truly, truly integrated care. 
And so you lose that integration when you close down several departments within a medical center. So what's on this page? If you're doing a, a spreadsheet and you're somebody who couldn't care less about the human beings who will be affected by this, this could all be pieces of a puzzle that look just fine. But the human cost is going to be horrendous. If they do this to veterans, veterans will suffer, veterans will die. All right. So the plan is out. And now there's the Air Commission, which has to kind of get its legs under itself and get going to evaluate these things and recommendations. It's a long process yet. What will AFGE be doing in the meantime while this thing cogitates through the machinery? Well, we've got to do a lot of different things. I mean, one of the things that's undeniable in this, um, even as Secretary McDonough tries his hardest and twists himself into a pretzel trying to deny it, it is a destruction of union jobs. He says, net, net, you'll have more jobs. Meanwhile, many, many, many union jobs will be destroyed. So that's, you know, our number one job, of course, because we are the union, is to promote and protect the interests of our own members. Now, it's not well known, but more than a third of the VA workforce are veterans themselves. They are users of the VA system. And another enormous portion of our membership are veterans, people who work as civilians in the Department of Defense, who work in law enforcement, in the Bureau of Prisons, in DHS, throughout DHS, TSA, Border Patrol, ICE. They have disproportionate numbers of veterans in those workforces as well. Our membership is overwhelmingly veterans. And You know, I've been in so many situations where, you know, a speaker will say, all the veterans in the audience stand up. And, you know, often, you know, a handful of people stand up and and you get some applause. In an AFGE gathering, when they say all the veterans stand up, more than half the room stands up. So we are not a VSO, but boy, are we a veterans organization. And so we are very, very, very interested at every level. So obviously, um, our job is to go through this uh, set of recommendations with a fine-tooth comb. We'll be lobbying the commissioners. We'll be lobbying the Congress. We'll be participating in all the hearings that are held throughout the country. We will try to make sure that the commissioners hear about the human cost of these horrible recommendations, not only on the veterans, but also on the VA workforce and in the communities where these veterans facilities are located. You know, I I don't think anybody can doubt that closing a medical center hurts a lot of small businesses, um, hurts the community. These are good union jobs that that will be disappearing. Families will no longer be able to afford to patronize local businesses, and the effects will be across the board negative. There's no good in this thing. I mean, in the closures. As far as building new facilities, improving existing facilities, repurposing aging facilities, we're all for that. But we are opposed to the closures. Jacqueline Simon is Director of Public Policy at the American Federation of Government Employees. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access 
to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am 
try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.